We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to U.S. News & World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact-seeker and a truth-teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Mile Higher Podcast, episode 185. Today, we are going to be kind of switching gears and talking about, honestly, one of the most tragic and worst man-made disasters in history, in American history. And we are going to be talking specifically about the Deepwater Horizon disaster, which was a huge oil spill explosion. Um, A lot of people lost their lives, and it's really... A story that I think more people should know all the details around. There, There is a movie, Deepwater Horizon, which is excellent. Very good. Yeah. Highly recommend it. When, when did that come out? Like 2016? Yeah, it's, yeah it was definitely five plus years ago. I Mark think. Wahlberg's in it. It's, it's really good, but obviously it's a movie. So there's some details that are different. So we just wanted to kind of go over everything. And it really just is a mind-blowing story of heroism as well. Uh, it's very inspiring. So yeah, I'm excited to talk about this one. Yeah, me too. This is this is one that I find very interesting, and I think a lot of people, I, I think a lot of people put, especially like oil drilling, like kind of out of sight, out of mind. Even though mm-hmm. we all go to the gas station, right? Uh, or all of us that have gas vehicles go to the gas station all the time and don't even think about where this is actually coming from. You know, where does it originate at? And it's actually really fascinating to see not only sort of the modern marvels that of that man has created these massive rigs that are able to drill deep, deep down within the earth in order to pull crude oil out, but also just, you know, if you don't do it safely and don't follow proper protocols and, you know, things can go very, very wrong very quickly. And that's really what the story of Deepwater Horizon is all about. And hopefully it's been a huge lesson to the you know oil industry as a whole and you know what types of devastating impacts a spill can have on the environment mm-hmm. not and not just the environment and animals and marine life but also the crew on board the people yeah. that actually you know go out there for weeks at a time to pull this oil out of the ground so yeah i agree i think that's something that people don't think about enough is where it's coming from and who's handling it and how it actually gets to the pump itself, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's just like one of those things. I mean, it's like food. It's like many other things where yeah. we take it for granted a lot mm-hmm. of times and it's just something we're so used to that it we, we doesn't even, the question doesn't even pop up into our heads at all when we're pumping our gas. But yeah. when you actually look at a lot of the sacrifice and a mm-hmm. lot of just, I mean, the machinery that's required in yep. order to do this, it's, it's truly, it's truly amazing, honestly, like the fact that we're able to do this at all. But, but also truly horrific when exactly. you understand it more. It's yeah. And like, it, when wow. it's, you know, it's not a perfect science to how they do it. And in this story, there's a lot of things that went wrong and oversights that were made that ultimately led to this horrific man-made disaster. So this will be a very interesting one. I think I think a lot of you probably don't have any idea what offshore oil drilling is like or what it consists of mm-hmm. and just everything that's involved in order to get the gasoline to the pump but before we get into that you probably notice if you're watching on youtube the oh, sign yeah. is back hey. we had a couple episodes it's looking better than ever yes um turns out it was just a transformer on the back so we have two transformers back there instead of one wow it's looking i don't even beautiful. know what a transformer is to be honest <laughs> it's basically the device that's providing power to the sign oh well thank you very much transformer yeah <laughs> It looks great. Awesome. But this episode's brought to you by Stamps.com, Tushy, ExpressVPN, HellFresh, and Native Deodorant. So before we get into the story surrounding the Deepwater Horizon disaster, I think we got to start by looking at just some background information on offshore drilling. Because in order to really understand what happened that day on the Deepwater Horizon, we have to understand what they're actually doing out there in the middle of the ocean and how offshore drilling really works and what it is. 
So offshore drilling is the process of removing oil and gas from rock formations underneath the ocean's floor using offshore drilling rigs. And these oil rigs have large platforms that sit above the water where workers operate the drills. And some of these platforms are fixed to the ocean floor, in fact. For drilling operations in deeper water, these oil rigs need to be able to float and actually move. They're actually not just stationary in the water. They can move from different locations on the ocean. A big chunk of oil and gas used in America comes from offshore drilling, making oil companies a shit ton of money. Most of America's offshore drilling takes place at oil and gas reserves off of the coast of Louisiana, California, Alaska, and Texas, but a majority of it happens in the Gulf of Mexico. The Gulf of Mexico has a large, large amount of oil reserves underwater, but the offshore drilling process creates a lot of pretty significant environmental risks. First of all, the rigs create a lot of CO2 and methane emissions, plus the higher CO2 levels warm the water around the rigs and warmer waters are a key ingredient in the formation of hurricanes, so obviously doesn't help that. Also, the extraction process produces water as a byproduct, so this water is too salty to mix well with natural seawater, and it sometimes contains high levels of multiple heavy metals or even radioactive materials. Obviously, there's also the risk of oil spills and leakages, which release natural gas and oil into the surrounding ecosystem, often with truly disastrous consequences for the environment and the life living there. But still, offshore drilling is a big industry in the States, and hundreds of oil rigs operate off of the country's coasts. They're all owned by a variety of different oil and gas companies. Not many people actually know how the drilling process works, and the sheer number of people required to work on these jobs. And while it's not glamorous work, crew members that work on oil rigs help keep the country moving, and their contribution often comes at a great personal cost. The process of drilling an underwater well is pretty complicated and hard to understand for someone unfamiliar with the business, but still the basics are important to know if we want to understand the events of April 20th and how it all went down. So let's talk about the drilling process and just sort of rig life in general. In order to find potential drill sites, geologists study the sea floor and begin undersea exploratory missions using seismic technology, sonar technology, in order to find a well prospect. They actually send out ships that sort of comb over the waters of the Gulf of Mexico and, and various places off the coast of the United States. And they're able to send sonar waves down into the water, which hit the ocean floor and allow them to sort of map it and figure out where these pockets of oil actually exist. And that's when they actually name this prospect a particular name. These prospects are given code names and the rights to drill at these prospects are then sold to different oil and gas companies for them to go and drill. So once the drill site has been picked, the undersea well must be drilled by an offshore rig. The rig is equipped with a drill that digs down through the thousands of feet of rock below the Earth's surface, creating a hole or a well. And as the drill moves, mud is sent down the casing pipe, removing the rock that the drill's cut away and keeping the drill head lubricated. It's really kind of astonishing how they do this. The fact that they're able to build these huge drill bits with all of this drill casing and have it go as deep as it does is truly incredible. Also, when talking about drilling mud, this isn't just like dirt or mud that you would create by mixing dirt with water. This is actually a drilling fluid. The drilling mud is a mixture of fluid and different types of clays that's used in order to keep the drill head lubricated, like I said before. But once the plan depth is reached, a smaller casing is attached to the drill and then sent down to the well. It is then held in place by waterproof cement, which is sent down by the casing followed by drilling mud in order to keep the pressure stable. A cement plug separates the cement and mud. And once the pressure increases enough as the well is drilled deeper, it becomes necessary to install a device called a blowout preventer. Remember that, or a BOP, at the top of the seafloor where the well begins. So it sits at the bottom of the ocean on the seafloor, and it's basically a device that makes sure that while they're drilling that well, that if any pressure builds up, that it's able to seal it off before it actually blows out completely and we have a huge problem. It also stops oil and gas from shooting out of the well and up to the rig in case there is a problem or failure with the well's pressure or seal. And this blowout preventer is an essential device. It's vital that it's tested often and that it works properly because if the blowout preventer fails when it's needed, this could potentially lead to a huge accident and oil spill and potentially lives at risk. So after the well is constructed, the offshore drilling rig moves on. And these rigs don't actually collect the oil and gas themselves. 
Instead, they drill the well and another company extracts the gas and oil after this rig leaves. And from there, the oil and gas are transported on shore and processed for use in our cars, trucks, planes, homes, and businesses via a refinery. But if you've never seen offshore drilling rigs, they are massive structures that can fit hundreds of people on them. And workers usually have to live on the rigs for weeks at a time. And they form tight-knit communities on board, as you can imagine. I mean, these rigs are oftentimes an hour off of shore and there's no land around it. I mean, you can't even see the land from the rig. You're just out there in the middle of the ocean floating on this massive man-made rig. The facilities on the rigs are definitely not glamorous by any means. They're a cross between college dorms and an office building pretty much. There's a kitchen, rec rooms, conference rooms, and shared cabins for the crew to sleep in. All the meals are prepared for the crew by the onboard kitchen staff. Workdays are long and intense, but crew members still have some free time to chill out with each other or, you know, Skype with their family and friends back home. So this was pretty much what everyday life was like aboard one oil rig named Deepwater Horizon. So the Deepwater Horizon was built in 2001 by South Korean shipbuilding company, Hyundai Heavy Industries, and it was valued at $560 million and took two years to build. The rig was commissioned by the offshore drilling contractor TransOcean, who leased it out to British Petroleum Company, or as it's more commonly known, BP. Deepwater Horizon was a semi-submersible offshore drilling rig, meaning it was a floating rig that the crew can move around. Right, because it's got to be able to go from different prospect to prospect Mm -hmm. in order to drill. So it kind of sits on skis in the water, and the skis are underwater. Mm -hmm. And then on the ends of the skis are actual engines that they use in order to propel it through the water. So these types of semi-submersible rigs are needed for drilling wells that are deeper than 500 meters underwater. Many people considered this rig to actually be lucky, and it was generally well-liked by the crew members that worked on it. It employed hundreds of people throughout the years and had one of the strongest safety records in the industry. This is uh, a holding area, and then this is what most people think of when they see a drilling rig. However, it wasn't always easy for crew members working on board to stay safe. Multiple rig workers reported that there was an unspoken rule not to raise too many safety concerns that delayed drilling operations as they feared they would lose their jobs. TransOcean actually did a confidential survey of rig employees in 2010 and employees reported that they feared what would happen to their jobs if they brought up some of these concerns. Some of them even said that they faked possibly troubling equipment data readings because they believed that the higher-ups wanted better productivity rates rather than dealing with the maintenance issues. And the reason for this is because the companies that are leasing these rigs are paying basically a huge fee per Mm -hmm. day, somewhere between half a million to a million dollars per day to have them operate this rig to drill for wells. So obviously the people that are leasing the rigs, they don't want the rig to be down. They don't want to stop productivity. So therefore, you know, kind of makes sense why there is this unspoken rule. Aboard. Yeah. I mean, it's the classic profit over everything. What do you think was more important to, to BP or to TransOcean, time and money or, or safety? Um, time and money, honestly. I mean, they, they preach safety. It's like safety is only convenient for them when they need it. You know, you, you're pressured and pushed to do things. And, and if you say, hey, you know, because everybody has the right to call time up for safety, but you do it you're going to get run off, you know, you're going to get fired. And they're not going to fire you for that, but they're going to figure out a way eventually to get rid of you. And you've seen that happen? Yeah, I have actually. Yeah, I have. All of these maintenance issues were a huge problem, though, and they would be trouble for the Deepwater Horizon after they were set to work on the Macondo Prospect. In 2008, BP bought the rights to drill for oil at the Macondo Prospect, And the Macondo Prospect is located in the Gulf of Mexico off of the Louisiana coast. The following year, BP submitted an environmental impact plan to the U.S. government that stated that an accidental oil spill was unlikely to happen while they drill at the prospect. BP also said that they would have the proper response methods in place if an accident were to happen so there would be no significant harmful consequences. So the government accepted the plan, and in October of 2009, the Transocean Marianas rig began drilling at the Macondo oil well. Now, the spot where the drilling on the well began was 5,000 feet below the ocean surface, and the well was supposed to be drilled over 18,000 feet long under the seabed surface. Obviously, this well was going to be potentially a huge source of profit, and officials estimated that it could produce 200 million barrels of oil a year. 
However, Hurricane Ida actually damaged the Marianas rig badly, badly enough that it needed to be replaced by another similar rig. So on February 15, 2010, Transocean resumed its drilling with the Deepwater Horizon. The rig was located 52 miles off the coast of Venice, Louisiana. And at this time, the Deepwater Horizon was the largest oil rig in the world. And the Macondo Well was set to be one of the deepest wells ever dug. So one of the employees that we will be talking about a lot today, who worked on the rig in 2010, was Chief Electronics Technician Mike Williams. Mike Williams lived in Texas with his wife, Felicia, and their daughter, Sydney. He was also a former U.S. Marine. Mike studied electrical and electronics engineering at McGill University and graduated in 2004. And that same year, he got a job working for BP as an assistant electrician. Two years later, he started working for Transocean as an electrical engineer and started his master's degree in electronic engineering at UC Berkeley. In 2006, Mike started working on an oil rig for the first time. Mike really enjoyed the job. He said, in fact, that he was mesmerized by the experience. And in January of 2010, Transocean actually promoted him to the position of chief electrical engineer. We were breaking ground and completing tasks that had never been done before, whatever popped up during the well, they would, would, of course, log it, note it, and send that back to town, and and they would build regulations based off of what we learned. We were discovering regulations as we drilled. Another notable crew member of the Deepwater Horizon was named Jimmy Harrell, and he was the rig's offshore installation manager, or OIM. And he had been working on offshore oil rigs since 1973 and had been working on the Deepwater Horizon since 2004. Which... I think the very first offshore oil rig was made in 1947 or 1943. Mm. Somewhere in the 1940s is Mm. when they first started doing offshore oil rigs. And over time, you know, obviously they started small and couldn't go that far off of the coast. But over time, they got bigger and bigger and bigger as technology Mm -hmm. progressed. And they were able to make these massive oil rigs that they have today. So Jimmy was very well known around the rig and people actually referred to him as Mr. Jimmy and he was known for being an outspoken leader and having that kind of matter of fact manner when it comes to ensuring the safety of the projects and crew members. Safety for his crew was very important to him. Yeah, he really cared about his job and really, I mean, like you said, he was the leader of the, he was ultimately responsible for what happened on the rig and he was just well loved by everybody that worked with him. Mm Mm-hmm. Another crew member was Andrea Flatus. She was 23 years old at the time and the ship's dynamic positioning operator. She had worked in this role for about a year and a half, and her job responsibilities included maintaining the location and balance of the rig, avoiding collisions, and managing the alarms. She boarded the ship for another stint at work four days before the incident. During this time, British Petroleum had hired the oil and gas service company Halliburton to provide services for the actual construction of the well. And BP was already very behind on their targeted drilling dates, and they cut a ton of corners in order to try and save money that they were losing by each day that was going by. If you're saying they're cutting corners, what what, what would their motivation be? To finish the job faster, to uh, save money. And you think that's what this is about? It was about saving time, saving money? Well, yes. They're over budget on it. So yeah, they were cutting corners to, for time and money. For example, BP made the decision to use a cheaper type of cement to seal a casing in the well, which doesn't sound like a very good idea. You don't want to cheap out on underwater cement. This cement would use nitrogen in order to speed up the setting of the cement. Halliburton employees warned that they thought the cement would not create a successful seal of the well, which is very important. In March of 2010, a rig mechanic reported that the well had been giving them trouble for months, including repeated kicks from the drill and leaks from the blowout preventer, which a kick is a term in offshore drilling that refers to small leaks of gas bubbles which travel up the well and burst through the top of the rig. Honestly, pretty scary when you see these kicks in action. Yeah. yeah I, the guys that deal with this on a day-to-day basis, I'm like, God, that's crazy. Yeah, it's could really be, it can be potentially dangerous as well if the kicks are large enough. But on April 14, 2010, a BP drilling engineer emailed one of his colleagues and told him, quote, that this has been a nightmare well which has everyone all over the place. There's always like an ominous feeling when we're on that well, you know, and a lot of people were telling uh, everybody else, you know, on the rig, you know, it was like chatter that, you know, we're messing with Mother Nature right now. I mean, there's always something, you know, either kick or we're getting stuck or we're getting large amounts of gas. 
The next day, that drill engineer told a Halliburton executive that they plan to use six centralizers for the cement job instead of the recommended 21. Big discretion there between six and 21. what the hell? So again, cutting corners. The exec from Halliburton also suggested that they fully circulate drilling mud through the well to release any potential gas bubbles before cementing. And BP ended up only circulating a fraction of the mud that they wanted in the well. On the 16th, another BP drilling engineer confirmed that they'd only use six centralizers instead of 21. And he said that the six would be enough to seal the well properly. And in an email he wrote, Quote, who cares? It's done. End of story. They'll probably be fine and we'll get a good cement job. Can you believe that? I just, uh, when you're dealing with this kind of stuff, I just can't imagine cutting corners. I mean, it's like if you work in the airline industry and imagine if, and it might happen, honestly, but imagine if airplane mechanics were like sending emails together like, oh yeah, instead of you know, the six wheels, just cut four, yeah. you know, do four It'll and leave fine. the other we'll two We'll still make off. a ton of money. So yeah, exactly. Good. Like, let's yeah. save time. Let's not, you know, stop these flights from going out. It's the same kind of deal. Just no much. regard for the consequences, even though they know so well how Yeah, they're experts this on this. They yep. know what they're doing. That's the mm-hmm. thing about it. Is they're just, they're playing with chance. They're like, oh, well, what's the chances yeah. of something going wrong mm-hmm. if we do this? Again, the Halliburton exec warned that only using six stabilizers could lead to the seal of the well failing. Two days later, he submitted a report that said that the well had a severe gas flow problem. So again, all these issues have already come to light around this well, the Macondo Prospect. And seemingly nobody's doing anything about it because BP wants the drilling to go on. They want this well done. So that leads us to April 20th, 2010. And this was a day like any other on the deep water horizon. But before we get into what happens next, we're going to take a quick ad break and we'll be right back. So like we said, April 20th, 2010 started as just a normal day on the deep water horizon. The water was calm and peaceful around the rig and a crew from Halliburton was waiting on the ship for a helicopter to arrive on the platform and bring them home. And they had just completed a cement job on the well, and Halliburton recommended that BP perform a required cement bond log test. And this test would have taken 9 to 12 hours to complete and would have cost BP only $128,000, which, you know, sounds like a lot, but in retrospect. Yeah, to this mm. multi-billion trillion dollar company, that's chump change. Right. So BP didn't want to spend the money, of course, because they're cheap as hell. And they just wanted to continue pushing the project on. They didn't want to fall behind schedule. So they canceled the test at 7 a.m. that day. Now that BP had canceled the test, the Halliburton crew had received the go-ahead to leave. And when Captain Jimmy saw that the crew was leaving, he was confused. And he asked why they were packing up, even though they hadn't run the test. And that's when he found out that BP had gone ahead and just canceled it. Jimmy was not happy at all with this decision. He had already fought with the BP officials a few days before about the fact that he thought they hadn't been doing enough tests on the well. And when he found out that BP had canceled that cement bond log test, he threatened to go home unless they could prove Halliburton had safety sealed the well. At this point, though, the project was already 43 days behind schedule, and all these delays ended up costing the company $21 million. Officials with BP were anxious to finish the work as soon as possible and as cheaply as possible, of course. Meanwhile, more crew members are getting ready to head out to the rig. They checked into a helicopter airport in Louisiana known as the Port Fouchon, and that day they would be joined by some officials from BP. The crew boarded the helicopter to ferry them to the rig, and they landed on the Deepwater Horizon's helipad at 11.15 a.m. Halliburton employees left right after this without performing the cement test, and recommended that BP do it themselves. There were now 126 crew members aboard the rig. The rig had a supply ship tethered to it farther out in the ocean called the Damon Bankston, which had been waiting to load drilling mud off of the rig. Soon after the crew got off the helicopter, officials from BP gathered the crew members on the platform to celebrate seven years without an accident on the rig. It's just crazy to think that they're celebrating the safety of the rig on this day. It's so ironic. I mean, they literally gave... Jimmy, an award that day to celebrate this accomplishment. It was a big deal. It was a huge deal. Yeah. And once the celebrations ended, Jimmy still insisted that the crew perform a pressure test on the well. They did carry out this pressure test twice, but the team misinterpreted the results. 
After the test, one of the BP officials told a drilling mechanic to replace the mud in the well with seawater, which was a lot lighter. The mechanic said he didn't think that this was a good idea, but the BP official made the order anyway. BP wanted to again finish up the project as soon as possible. The company man basically said we have some changes to that. We're going to be doing something different. I recall it was something about uh, displacing uh, the riser with uh, seawater for that tower. Taking drilling mud out yes. and replacing it with seawater. Yes. And uh, basically he ended up uh, saying, well, this is how it's going to be. And uh, they started reluctantly agreeing. And uh, You're saying the guy from BP won the argument, basically. He basically said, well, this is how we're going to do it. Yes, that's what I remember, yes. He basically said, well, this is how it's going to be. However, there was still a large oil and gas leak in the well that the crew didn't know about. It had broken through the cement seal, which never ended up setting correctly because of that poor cement job that was done. It had been held down by the mud before, but after the heavy mud was then replaced with seawater, it began to travel up the well. And equipment on the rig started to warn that there was gas bubbling in the well that could lead to a possible blowout. The gas continued to travel up from the ocean floor towards the deep water horizon. So when this happens, that blowout preventer is supposed to shut it down, Mm -hmm. close it off so that it can't go up to the rig. But because of lack of maintenance and just equipment failure, the blowout preventer completely just did nothing. Mm -hmm. It, It wasn't it didn't do what it was supposed to do. And therefore, gas shot up through the drill column. The rig was about to have a blowout and mud started to shoot out of the platform with incredible force. Holloway turned to another task with fellow floor hand Daniel Barron. But when he happened to glance up at the drilling floor... saw a start of a blowout and I said, oh shit, and took off running. Mud gushed out of the well and poured off the drilling floor. Then it sprayed up inside the derrick. During this time, a group of college students were fishing in a boat under the rig when a wave of methane gas hit their eyes. The force of the gas hit them like a train, and they immediately drove the boat about 100 yards away from the rig. So meanwhile, while all of this starts happening, Mike is in his room on the phone with his wife when he suddenly started to hear this hissing noise. And as the engine started to rev up, the hissing grew louder and louder. The alarms began to sound, and the lights in his room got brighter and brighter until some of the bulbs actually started to explode. When Mike's computer monitor exploded right in front of him, he knew something was seriously wrong. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, that's insane. Computer monitor explode. At 9:49, Andrea was monitoring the ship when she felt a shaking jolt. When she looked at her control screen, she saw multiple magenta warnings flashing. Magenta warnings indicate that the most dangerous level of flammable gas had escaped. Right after this, the ship quickly lost power and Mike left his room and headed towards the engine control room to see what was going on. He figured there was something wrong with one of the engines. Then at 9.56, the gas shot through the rig floor and caught fire, causing a massive explosion that ripped through the whole rig with incredible force. All of a sudden, the door that Mike was about to open got blasted off of its hinges. Mike flew backward and the heavy metal door collided into his body. Carbon dioxide fire extinguishing agents automatically sprayed out into the rig to try and choke the fire's oxygen supply. But Mike struggled to breathe, and he couldn't see anything. Mike was terrified for his life at this point, understandably, and he started to crawl towards another door. And then an explosion sent that door flying into him, and he flew backward 35 feet. Mike was terrified at this point, but he was determined to make it outside. He crawled through the engine control room past two bodies on the floor and toward a dim light. He didn't want to just leave these men that were lying there injured, but he knew he was too injured to even help them. So at last, Mike made it outside and he noticed that one of the walkways was missing. It had been completely destroyed in the explosion. And all of a sudden, he heard someone near him call out for help. Mike desperately wanted to help whoever was near him, but he knew that the explosion hurt his own body very badly and he told them that he'd try to make it to the bridge to get them help. He noticed that at this point, he was actually standing on the lifeboat deck. Two fully functional lifeboats sat in front of him. Immediately, he grabbed a life jacket and struggled to put it on himself. The air around him was burning hot from the massive fire and all the harsh natural gases. Mike obviously desperately wanted to get onto one of those lifeboats and get off the burning rig, but he knew there were other people on board who needed saving. 
The fire around him grew into an inferno at this point, and crew members said that the fire grew so large that the rig sounded like it became a living creature. But the fire was intense, and, and it was the heat. People were worried about the dirt, you know, melting and, and falling towards the lifeboat. That's so scary. I know. I can't even imagine. Like, just in just the sheer amount of heat. Yeah. That's that's happening here. I How mean, do you even got... function to think through what your next move is going to be? Because it's just so such terrible conditions. Yeah, I mean, this this looks like hell on earth. Yeah. And, I mean, the amount of fire that was just enveloping this oil rig mm-hmm. was insane. I mean, when the people that were on shore could just see this bright glow yep. coming from the horizon out yep. there. That's how bright it was. Yeah. So during all of this, an announcement starts playing over the loudspeaker, warning that there was a fire and saying this is not a drill. The announcement also told everyone to report to their emergency stations and that the crew needed to use the two forward side lifeboats. Finally, Mike did make it to the bridge where he found that it was in a complete state of chaos. Multiple alarms sounded while crew members shouted and panicked around him. And that's when Mike told the captain that there had been a massive explosion and the crew was in serious trouble. Someone responded to Mike by telling him to shut up and calm down. And this made him very understandably oh my God. angry. Yeah. So I report to the captain, there's been a massive explosion. At a very minimum, number three engine has exploded and completely took off the back of the rig. And I remember that blank look he gave me of, of disbelief. He didn't believe what I was telling him. And I reemphasized it to, again. I said, look, we, we are in bad trouble. The ECR is, it's gone. The, the, the consoles and equipment are, it, it's all done. It's all, it's missing. It, it blown off the back of the rig, wherever it went, it's gone. And the engines have exploded. At least one engine has exploded. And at that point, I, I was actually told to shut up and calm down. Someone started to try to clean Mike's wounds with toilet paper, which is obviously useless. And he told the captain that they needed to abandon ship. Meanwhile, someone else shouted that the rig needed to disconnect from the well. However, a supervisor refused to do this until he could get approval from BP and Jimmy. Finally, Jimmy and a BP rep made it to the bridge and they were in rough shape. Someone shook Jimmy and told him to disconnect from the well. Jimmy was coughing and vomiting so hard that he could barely get the words out, but he was trying to say yes and EDS, and EDS actually means disconnect. The rep from BP also approved the decision. So the crew member then tried to cut the connection between the well and the rig, but the fire just continued to rage. There was a problem with both the annular preventers and the blind shear rams. Which, let me try to explain this in in layman's terms. So you have, you imagine the piping going all the way down to the ocean floor. Mm -hmm. So in that blowout preventer, that's where, I believe that's where the annular preventers and blind shear rams are. So basically they're going to try to cut cut the pipe mm-hmm. and seal it off but the problem was is that because it had already blown out the pressure was far too great yeah. that this this device that's supposed to be there to cut the pipe and seal it off just failed completely yeah. and didn't it's too strong yeah the pressure was too high so it wasn't able to actually break it off cuz the i mean the ultimately what they were trying to do is completely break off from the well seal it off and then move the rig away from uh, where all of this natural gas and oil is escaping so that hopefully they could save the rig. Right. So Andrea had already sounded the general alarm, but she noticed that no one else had pressed the other distress buttons. So she went ahead and hit them. She called in for a mayday through the radio systems and requested immediate assistance from any of the surrounding ships and the Coast Guard. At this point, the crew realized that the BOP had failed and the emergency disconnect had also failed and the fire suppression systems had also failed. There was now no method of communicating with the essential blow-up preventer device. And without power, there was no way of powering water pumps necessary for firefighting. Crew members responded by closing the upper annular preventer in the BOP. However, this did not seal the well as intended, and flammable oil and gas continued to flow into the riser toward the rig. Next, the crew closed a pipe ram. This successfully closed the annular space and sealed the well. But tragically, this proved to be only a temporary fix. Oil and gas that were already above the pipe ram continued to flow inexorably toward the deep water horizon. At approximately 9.49 p.m., the flammable hydrocarbons found an ignition source, and the first explosions shook the deep water horizon. 
After the BOP had failed to stop the blowout, the crew tried to seal the well by activating the blind shear ram. Now, the blind shear ram is a fail-safe method and a last resort when the rest of the BOP fails. It's supposed to cut the drill pipe and seal the well shut. However, due to the pressure, the drill pipe had bent enough that it became off-center. And since it was off-center, the blind shear ram could not cut it entirely as a straight angle, so the well didn't seal. Right, because it because again the pressure was too mm-hmm. high to for this to fight it, and basically instead of cutting it clean in half like you'd want, it just sort of bent it. So it was kind of like imagine like a Z uh, was formed in the pipe, which still allowed oil and gas to come through. So ideally, it should have cut it in half yeah, and sealed it, but, but it's off center. It wasn't able to. That's crazy. So obviously Mike and so many other crew members are starting to feel just disgusted that all of these systems that supposedly protect the crew from danger had just failed right when they needed them the most. And again, this is a rig that got seven yep. years uh, safety award. Yeah. And got the award that day. So when Mike looked outside of the bridge, he saw that one of the ship's two lifeboats was already sailing away. The captain had finally given the order for the crew to abandon ship at this point. At this time, there were eight people left in the bridge. And as they headed down the stairs to the second lifeboat, they saw that it was already being lowered into the water. Imagine the feelings that would come. Yeah. Like the anger, the the fear. The sinking feeling. Oh, my Just God. Like, oh, my God. Am I going to die on here? There were two other lifeboats on the rear side of the ship. But Mike explained that the crew had only gotten the order to use the other two lifeboats. Everyone had figured the other lifeboats were damaged or otherwise inaccessible. Yeah, I mean, likely the reason why they didn't go to these is because they were cut off from the fire that was on the rig. And obviously things are starting to crash down. I mean, it's really, really starting to look grim aboard the Deepwater Horizon. Mike actually asked the captain about the two other lifeboats. And apparently the captain said he didn't think that the eight of them would be able to make it to them because they would probably been pretty dangerous. And who knows if they would have actually made it to them. And that was when they decided to launch one of the life rafts. And this raft came in a pre-sealed container that needed to be hung over the ship's side by a crane and then deployed or automatically inflated. It's like an emergency life Mm -hmm. raft that just kind of like expands on its own when you open it up. The mud, oil, and heat made it hard for the crew to launch the raft and board it, though. So they decided to get an injured crew member on the raft first. And as they tried to board, a series of intense explosions began to rock the rig. Mike grabbed Andrea and another young rig worker and held them against a wall in order to protect them from flying debris. Because, I mean, the whole rig's just starting to blow up, different parts of it. We had a, an, an injured man in a stretcher that had been recovered from the accommodations. And it was decided that we needed to get him on there first. And, and it was successful. They got him in. At that point, there were several more explosions, large intense explosions and i remember grabbing a girl and, and, a, and a young man by the shirts and backing them up against the wall there was a bulkhead that was 14 to maybe 18 foot tall that was offering us some protection from from the derrick itself at this point the derrick's probably been burning 20 to 30 minutes these explosions what do they feel like sound like oh they're just the most incredible fireworks you've ever been to and then you know, multiply it times 100. Uh, it just take your breath away type explosions, shake your body to the core explosions. Um, take your vision away from the percussion of the explosions. The raft was equipped with a dome-shaped protective tenting material that made the raft look like a pod, and the eight remaining crew members struggled to get past the opening into the raft, and Mike worried that the entry was starting to clog up with people. The crew, as you can imagine, was starting to panic, when they realized that sparks and smoke had started to flow up from the air pocket between the ship and the water. And they were worried that the rubber and the fabric on the raft would literally melt away. Because if you look down in the ocean, I mean, there's mm-hmm. crude oil on the ocean, so there's just flames everywhere. I mean, the ocean's literally on fire. Yeah, so it's not like you can point. jump off safely. And- well, in this raft, I mean, it's made out of rubber. It's If you put it right on top yeah. of a bunch of flames, it's going to mm-hmm. freaking melt with you in it. Finally, most of the crew members were able to board the raft successfully, and Mike told Andrea to get on the life raft, but she realized it was already being lowered into the water when she started stepping towards it. They were literally taking off without them, Yep. and Mike was horrified. He had now just been left behind by lifeboat one, lifeboat two, and now the emergency life raft, and at this point, it was just him, Andrea, and the other crew member. How insane is that? God. 
It was like they left you there. Yep. Mike knew that they were young and may not be able to help him deploy another raft. And at that point, one of his arms and one of his legs began to give out from the pain of their injuries. And he worried that there wasn't much time left. When Mike looked at Andrea, he saw in her eyes that she looked like she had given up. And she told him that she was scared. And Mike reassured her that it was okay to be scared, but they needed to find a way off of the rig. At that point, he realized the only option they had was to actually jump off of the rig. When he turned around, he saw that the other young crew member had already jumped off of the rig near the life raft. And Mike worried that the crew member would hit the life raft on the way down and not only injure himself, but some of the other escaping crew members. The jump that Mike and Andrea needed to make was almost 10 stories high above the water, which is about 100 feet. The water around them was dark and full of burning gas and debris. In order to make the jump without hitting the life raft, Mike and Andrea would need to back up a few feet and take a running start before they jumped. Andrea was terrified and told Mike that she couldn't do it, and Mike told her that she only had two options. They were either going to jump off the ship or burn to death, and he told her that if she refused to jump, he would have to throw her off the ship himself. And just like that, the time had come to jump off of the ship. Mike said a prayer for his family's safety and took three steps back, and then he ran to the edge and leaped off of the rig into the dark water below. I remember looking to the, at, at Andrea and telling her, or looking at her and, and seeing that, that look in her eyes of she had quit, she had given up. And I remember her saying, I'm scared. And I said, it, it's okay to be scared, I'm scared too. She said, what are we gonna do? I said, we're gonna burn up or we're gonna jump. And she said she couldn't jump. I remember telling her, if you don't jump, I'm gonna throw you. you we have to get off of here. We can't stay here. And I remember thinking, you know, if, if you can get two or three steps between here and the, and the rig, you can jump and land out further than the life raft is. I won't need, need much trajectory to land somewhat past this life raft and be in the clear, barring whatever might be floating in the water. I remember closing my eyes and, and saying a prayer and uh, <clears throat> asking God to tell my wife, little girl, that uh, Daddy did everything he could, and, and if I survive this, it's for a reason. I made those three steps. And I pushed off into the rig, and I fell for what seemed like forever. A lot of things go through your mind. And that's what makes this movie so interesting, Deepwater Horizon, is it's very similar um, to how it actually played out the incident itself. Yeah, it gives you a great visual representation of all of these yeah. things that really happened to them. It's, yeah. And when you watch it, it's so it's mind-blowing. It I mean, is. it's like the courage mm-hmm. that Mike had and just, I mean, to step up and not not just worry about saving yourself. I think yeah. so many of us in a position like this would probably just save ourselves and just probably, forget yeah. everybody else. I'm going to get off of this rig. But Mike made sure that anybody he could save, he would get them off the rig with him. After jumping off of the rig, Mike fell through the air for what felt like a very, very long time. And after hitting the water, he could feel his body getting hot around him as he began to rise to the surface. He began to try and use his one good arm and leg to try and paddle away from the heat. Crude oil, grease, and diesel cover the water, and he could feel it all around him as he paddled. And that's when Mike realized that he was covered in flammable material, and if the fire in the water around him caught up to him, he'd burn up. The thick oil covered his entire body, and he desperately tried to find a clean spot under his life jacket to wipe his hands. After he finally got them clean, he literally had to wipe oil off of his eyeballs so he could see again. That is disgusting and horrible. Like, yeah. I cannot imagine a a worse situation. No. Really. Like, you're trying to swim, trying to get away deal with from your fire. injuries, get away from fire. Your cu- I mean, it's just so many things going on at once. The pain was intense, but Mike swam as hard as he could. And after a while, he suddenly couldn't feel anything anymore. His pain was gone, and he couldn't see, hear, or smell anymore. At that point, Mike thought he had burned up and died. When he regained consciousness again, he realized that he had managed to swim closer to the life raft. He could feel pain again, and he heard the voice of someone on the life raft calling out, Over here. Mike tried his hardest to swim towards the raft, but at some point, he couldn't move anymore. And finally, the life raft got close enough to Mike that someone flipped him around and pulled him into it. After the raft picked up Mike, the crew saw beacon lights coming from the other life jackets and realized there were still people in the water who needed rescuing. 
First, the life raft picked up Andrea, who had jumped off of the ship after Mike did, and then they started moving closer to the rig again. They had seen another life raft full of people who were desperately trying to escape the current that pulled them closer and closer towards the fire. When they reached the second raft, they tied the two rafts together, and the driver of the first raft realized its engine had lost power. As they tried to pull away, the crew on the second life raft began to scream. And when Mike turned around, he saw that the life raft was still attached to the rig by a rope, and it had tipped into the water at a 45-degree angle. Transocean had a no-knife policy on the rig, meaning nobody had something sharp enough to cut the rope. Fortunately, the driver of the first life raft had some sort of tool in his pocket, so he threw it to the other raft, and they managed to cut themselves free. Finally, the two rafts were able to drive away from the burning rig and were rescued by the Damon Bankston. And while they waited on the ship, crew members took attendance to see if everyone was able to make it off of the rig. Tragically, not every crew member was able to respond when their name was called. The explosion aboard the Deepwater Horizon had killed 11 workers and seriously injured 17 others. And honestly, it's amazing it didn't kill more Seriously, though, I'm shocked that there weren't more fatalities as a result of this disaster because it was really that bad horrific but yeah that's a lot of people 11 people from bp's careless mistake they're rushing through the tests and all these people lost their lives for what yeah when when it was all it was preventable too that's the the hardest thing is this whole disaster is completely preventable it's so so angering i can't imagine how all of their family members felt during this time i know and just the aftermath of, yeah. of this disaster is just forever from then on. Like it's crazy. Knowing how they how they passed and how horrific their last what moments their last were. Moments I mean, were like, it's just ugh, it's so awful. Really is. So we will get into the aftermath of the oil spill and how it affected all the workers and their families, as well as the environment after we take our last break of the day. So the Coast Guard eventually rescued the survivors from the Damon Bankston. The injured survivors were airlifted to a trauma center. After 24 hours, the uninjured survivors were finally transported to a hotel in Kenner, Louisiana. We had a moment of silence, and I meant, you know, after that was done, I had to, I had to walk, walk off, and then, you know, a couple of people came over there, and, you know, were asking, "You all right? You all right?" Yeah, just, just give me a minute. Just give me a minute. But really, wasn't all right. And, At the hotel, the survivors were given food, showers, and medical assistance. And TransOcean told crew members to fill out forms regarding the incident before they were reunited with their families. The next day, April 22nd, the Deepwater Horizon sank. The rig still sits at the bottom of the ocean to this day. At first, Coast Guard officials had believed that there was a possibility that no oil would leak from the well and that there would be little environmental impact. But boy, were they wrong. Three days after the initial explosion, they discovered that there would be a major oil spill. A Coast Guard employee reported that 8,000 gallons of oil was leaking from the well into the ocean every day. The oil spill that followed the explosion became the largest accidental oil spill in history and the worst U.S. environmental disaster ever. And it's actually estimated that 210 million gallons of oil spilled into the ocean, affecting an area of the Gulf that was the size of Oklahoma. And after the oil spill began to hit the shoreline, It contaminated an estimated 1,100 miles of shoreline. As you can imagine, the effects on marine life in the Gulf were absolutely devastating. In 2013, researchers reported that marine life in the area, like fish, sea turtles, crabs, and dolphins, were dying at record-setting numbers. Infant dolphins born in the Gulf were dying at rates six times higher than before the spill. And it's a terrible way for animals to go, too. I mean, a lot of the times they're suffocating and choking it's to like death poison on the oil yeah. yeah 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 it's really horrible what it does to marine animals because one of the things that uh them being in oil ingesting oil leads to is reproductive failure and organ damage i mean it's a really horrible way to die yeah it uh, is. for any living being but yeah and even other animals like birds are obviously being affected too and it's because they're being drowned after being held down by the heavy weight of the oil and they can't get it off of themselves Different types of fish like tuna and amberjack, which are commonly consumed in the United States, suffered birth defects and mutations when they were exposed to the spilled oil. 
These effects are usually fatal or at least life-shortening for these animals. The local economies of the states on the Gulf took a massive hit as well. Offshore drilling was suspended after the accident, leaving around 10,000 people unemployed during the suspension. Tourism is, you know, the backbone of the economy for many of these coastal towns who depend on streams of visitors coming into the shoreline. But with the beaches being so polluted or just closed for cleanup efforts, the beach tourism industry in these towns just choked. About a third of the fishing operations in the Gulf were suspended due to fear of contamination, leaving more people jobless and local communities devastated. Officials tried over and over again to stop the flow of oil from the well and contain what was leaking into the ocean still, but they weren't able to stop the leak at all. The oil just continued to flow out of the well for 87 days until it was declared dead on September 19, 2010. A massive cleanup operation began, and over 7,000 boats and 47,000 people worked to minimize the damage done by the spill. Thousands of people just volunteered to help out in the response efforts. Part of the cleanup efforts include the use of oil dispersants, and these dispersants work by breaking down the oil to make it more biodegradable. However, of course, BP used a dispersant called Corexit, and Corexit contains many toxic and cancer-causing chemicals. One study estimated that BP's use of Corexit actually made the oil spill 52 times more toxic than it already was. Just get that through your head. 52 times worse. Cleanup crews also tried to remove the oil by using a filtration system and collection methods. And another popular method involved burning the oil directly off the top of the water. Some oil was retrieved at the wellhead, skimmed, burned, and chemically dispersed by responders. A portion settled on the seafloor. At the surface... Some oil either naturally evaporated or dispersed and dissolved. In recent years, scientists discovered that oil on the water's surface also interacted with sunlight. This interaction transformed many of the chemicals in the oil and influenced how it moved through the environment. The rest of the oil is unaccounted for. When marine spills happen, physical processes such as ocean, tidal, and wind currents distribute oil throughout ocean and coastal habitats, which is what happened to surface oil from Deepwater Horizon. Some of it eventually landed on shore. The oil impacted over 1,300 miles of the Gulf of Mexico's 3,500-mile coastline. 64% of those oiled shores occurred in Louisiana, mostly in its marshes. The spill left a huge number of animals in dire need of rescue and rehabilitation. Many affected animals like turtles, dolphins, and birds were captured and released after they had cleaned the oil off of them. Local governments tried their best during the cleanup efforts to attract tourists to the unaffected or newly cleaned beaches using the settlement money from BP, but people were just slow to come back. The government lifted the offshore drilling suspension in October of 2010, but other industries in the Gulf took years to recover economically. And the environmental impacts of that oil spill continue to affect the ecosystem to this day. And in early 2018, there were actually reports that the well hadn't been totally sealed and continued to leak oil. Well, the other issue is, too, is that they don't even there's no way for them to even know if it's completely sealed or not. And BP did send down underwater robots to inspect it, obviously, because they're not going to send humans down there. It's too far down there, first of all, yeah. but it's still dangerous. And one of the things that they think happened was just due to the amount of pressure buildup that was down there is that it's actually the well actually cracked mm. and you know and cracked into all these veins mm -hmm. that now you know seep slowly. oil and natural gas slowly to all these other locations so the it is still leaking i mean i don't i don't think they can say that's 100 percent sealed by any means that there's still a slow leak happening and it's just crazy to think that all of this could have been avoided if they just took the time and the financial resources to test and make sure that everything aboard the rig was working how it was supposed to. And, yeah. And that this, I mean, it, it comes back to the cement too. The cement mm -hmm. job wasn't done properly right, yeah. either. So why it rush that? It was a rushed well that ultimately mm -hmm. ended up blowing out. So in September of 2014, a court ruled that BP was primarily responsible for the accident. Two years later, they were ordered to pay $20.8 billion in fines and this was actually the largest corporate settlement in U.S. history. 
So as we mentioned, in 2016, the Deepwater Horizon film came out and it was starring Mark Wahlberg, who played Mike Williams, the hero from the rig. And Mike was actually hired to consult for the movie extensively. And it shows because it's, it's very similar. He wanted to make sure that the film was as accurate as possible. But as you can imagine, it was incredibly tough for Mike to work on the film after experiencing the accident firsthand. However, he wanted the public to remember the 11 men who lost their lives that day and make sure that their memory was honored. Honoring those 11 men with this project, um, to me, brings the spotlight back around. As we're speaking right now, there are men and women offshore putting their lives uh, in harm's way so that we can do what we do, drive around in cars, fly on airplanes, and all that sort of stuff. Getting that attention back um, to these 11 men who lost their lives is very critically important to me. That was our, our main focus, the loss of human life and honoring those people. The remarkable things that you and they did in order to survive and help others survive uh, was incredible. And to me, I just find that very inspiring, very heroic. Hero is not a, is not a badge that I even want to wear. Um, what we did that night was react to a very bad situation. You're either going to fight it or you're going to flee. Most of us chose to fight. So the, the term hero to me is, is irrelevant. We were doing our job. We were doing the, everything we could to save as many people as we could. I, I would hope that most people would do the same thing. And surprisingly, Mike actually continued to work for Transocean on oil rigs. And in the years following the accident, he's had to deal with severe PTSD and survivor's guilt, which has led to multiple suicide attempts. Many other survivors suffered similar mental health issues following the accident. I can't imagine how strong that survivor's guilt would be. Oh, yeah. Just eating away at you, thinking, why not me? Why someone else versus me? How did I make it off? Yeah, I know. Just got to, like, tear you apart every day. Seriously. And, and the people that did lose their lives were primarily the people in the drilling shack, is what yeah. it's called. And mm -hmm. they're the guys that yeah. are actually operating the drill and kind of out in the open and when that blowout occurred they were right there when the explosion happened yeah i mean it's really hard to put into words just how devastating this accident was for the people who survived the ptsd and survivor's guilt was just so so strong and with all of this pain and trauma that the victims had been through a lot of them started to have issues with their relationships and with themselves and others but but uh, no. The people who passed away weren't the only people who had their lives right. lost in some way. I don't at all want to take the, the 11 lives that were lost and their families. I, I'm sure they're going through a horrific and just unexplainable amount of emotion and loss in their life. But we lost our husbands as well. And to any of the injured men and women that were on that rig, I'm sure they've lost their lives and that their families have lost them. I mean, they're true... So, and like Amanda said, you know, Dan's still there. She sees him every once in a while. And I feel the same about Doug. But he's not himself. And I don't see him coming back anytime soon. Mm -mm. What gives you hope? Um, that one day, hopefully, we can settle and never forget. We can never forget, but we can move on. You know, we can get new careers. We can do other things. And I just want to be able to move on from all this. Jimmy Harrell was never the same again after the explosion. He battled PTSD and physical health issues that resulted from the blast. He could never bring himself to get back onto a boat, really of any size, after the accident. But he still loved to spend time hunting, fishing, and just generally being outdoors. Unfortunately, he did die this past year, 2021, and he died at the age of 65 after battling cancer. In the aftermath of this disaster, BP's chief executive at the time, Tony Hayward, uh, caught a lot of heat. Uh, he said some very, very concerning statements in regards to this accident that really offended people. And I'm going to go ahead and insert that clip here. May 13th, Chairman Tony Hayward speaking to The Guardian newspaper. The Gulf of Mexico is a very big ocean. The volume of oil and dispersant we're putting into it is tiny in relation to the total water volume. Five days later, Hayward again to Britain's Sky News. I think the environmental impact of this disaster is likely to be very modest. There's no one who wants this thing over more than I do. You know, I'd like my life back. As you heard, he said, I'd like my life back. Just let that sink in. After all these lives that have been lost, 
He's worried about just his daily comfort, not having to be bothered with people who are angry with him or yeah, he also said, in a bad yeah. way. Like, dude, what yeah. is wrong with you? And to put that statement out there, like, whatever, go think whatever stupid thoughts in your house. What he is. Yeah. yeah. It's just pure greed. Yeah. And he's actually got ousted because after this whole thing, it was a PR nightmare for BP. They actually fired him and yeah. one other exec at BP. And there and BP's claimed that, you know, after this whole accident, they reformed the entire company mm-hmm. and everything. And, okay. And uh, yeah. I'm sure, it's still profits over people. Yeah, they're back at it. Obviously, many survivors pointed out that because of BP's negligence, 11 men will never have their lives back again. And the other survivors and their families now lead lives that were permanently and drastically changed. 11 men were not able to come home to their families. They were fathers, sons, brothers, and friends. And it's essential to remember their lives and honor their memory while looking back on this accident. We wanted to read off their names. Their names are Aaron Dale Burkeen, who's 37 from Philadelphia, Mississippi. Carl Kleppinger Jr., 38, Natchez, Mississippi. Dewey Revit, 48, of State Line, Mississippi. Shane Roshto, 22, Liberty, Mississippi. Donald Clark, 49, of Newellton, Louisiana. Stephen Ray Curtis, 40, of Georgetown, Louisiana. Gordon Jones, 28, of Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Roy Wyatt Kemp, 27, Jonesville, Louisiana. Keith Blair Manuel, 56, of Gonzales, Louisiana. Adam Weiss, 24, Yorktown, Texas. And Jason Anderson, 35 years old, of Midfield, Texas. It's truly a devastating story, especially when you think, you know, how this could have been prevented and that truly greed was the reason for their deaths. Yeah. I mean... I can't imagine being their family members and and going forward with my life. I'd be so, so angry thinking that this could have been prevented. Yeah, it's just pure negligence on multiple parties. I mean, multiple parties were negligent in this accident. I mean, it wasn't just BP, Transocean. I mean, there was a lot of failures here. And, you know, regardless, you know, it was it ultimately did come back to BP. Um, because it was BP that yeah. was pushing to continue drilling when it wasn't mm-hmm. safe and when they hadn't run these crucial tests that were required in order to figure out if it was if the well was actually, you know, built properly and all everything tested out that it was safe yeah. to continue. And, and if they did those tests, you know, it would have cost what, one hundred and twenty eight thousand yeah. dollars and cost some time. And ultimately, because they didn't do that one hundred twenty eight thousand yeah. dollar test, BP had to pay out seventy five billion dollars. And they lost 11 employees. Yeah, 11 employees. Well, they're not employees of BP. Well, yeah, Yeah. but... Yeah. I mean, still, they're working for you. They are part of your process of... True. You know. Still, yeah. I mean, they're all working in in, on this rig together so Mm -hmm. that they're all responsible for each other and what's going on there. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, BP's like, you know, this was obviously a big deal for BP PR-wise. And, you know, they were Mm -hmm. in the shitter after this whole accident happened and i remember when this happened i remember seeing i was pretty young but i remember seeing tons of dawn dish soap commercials where they were washing the oil off of ducks totally yeah yeah because that's what they use i mean 11 humans died but the amount of wildlife that died i mean probably thousands upon thousands if not millions if Mm -hmm. you count fish and just the ongoing impact on the environment yeah the fact that we are still seeing this to this day yeah. that is possibly still leaking and is always going to have an effect yeah. on us for, you know, longer than any of us will be alive. Right. Such a massive, such a massive mistake. It is. It's it's very costly. And, you know, they, they do try to do this as safely as possible. And, and in most cases, if done properly, you can do, you know, this type of drilling with minimal impact to to the environment and you know it really is a science and there are you know a lot of things that are done in order to protect the environment and since then too i mean there's been a lot of there's been legislature that's been passed there's been a lot of things that have happened since this oil spill to hopefully prevent this from happening again and just make the art not the art but the practice of oil drilling uh offshore a much safer process and 
you know, as technology advances, it's hopefully get better and better. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, you know, the goal as a society is to move to mm-hmm. in, move away from non-renewable resources so that, you know, we can hopefully avoid these types of disasters from happening mm-hmm. time and time again. You know, it's like when humans are at the controls, there's always that margin of error that's going to occur. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, part of what happened here is just things were overlooked. Things weren't, you know, the data readings from that, uh, that test that they did was misinterpreted by, mm-hmm. by the people working on the rigs. So it was like, it's a multifaceted issue. I mean, ultimately BP, uh, was the one that was held responsible for it and held liable. And- yeah. I mean, they were the ones leasing the rig at the time and, you know, they put profits over, over yeah. everything. And ultimately that cost cost them huge and cost these families, their loved ones and the environment and the lasting impacts that are still going on today. I mean, the thing with oil, oil is that it's, it's very difficult to clean up. Mm-hmm. I mean, it takes a very long time to do so. Doesn't break down. No, it's very hard to break down and, and just, it can go, it goes, gets everywhere. I mean, it seeps yeah. into the beaches there and then there's potential for it to seep down into the ground, into groundwater. So then it's you're disgusting. talking about, the water that people are using mm-hmm. uh, in these coastal towns could it be contaminated? I mean, it's it's a huge issue, and I mean, it doesn't just happen. Oil spills don't just happen in offshore situations, but you know, there's pipes that break. There's all sorts of things that break, and it's 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 really hard. You know, it's like it's one of those things that we need mm-hmm. because that's what we're relying upon as a society, and for the most part, right now, at least right now, yeah. and have been for you know hundred yeah. years. But hopefully, we can eventually move away from having to extract this crude oil from from the ground and it's just crazy though like how deep that they drill i know this oil rig Deepwater horizon drilled a well that was thirty-five thousand feet it's i think it's one of the deepest oil wells ever drilled and when you think about yeah. how far down that is that's that's absurd insane. so think about that next time that you're getting gas you know yeah where it came from and whose hands it went through to get to you and, and definitely, I mean, there's definitely sacrifice that's made in order definitely. to get it here in, in a lot of different ways, both the environment and the people mm-hmm. that work on the rigs. So yeah. it's really you know, scary. before, you know, obviously gas prices are, are high right now and people are upset about that, but it's like, you know, there's a lot of different factors contributing to that. Oh, yeah. It's just, you know, I think it's good to be informed about, mm-hmm. you know, where you're getting everything, yeah. all the resources that you use. It's important to be knowledgeable in those things. So hopefully you can make better decisions that's in right. the future. But that is where we're going to wrap up today's episode. We hope you guys learned something new. But until then, keep on taking your mind a mile higher.